Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, friends and family of the Everyday Theology Podcast. Thanks so much for your continued support and listening and being with us. Um, I just wanted to give you all a heads up that for the next few episodes, the sound quality may not be what we want it to be, what we like it to be, or really even up to the standard that we place on ourselves. Um, I think as we all are kind of reeling with the effects of the coronavirus and safer at home orders and and things that surrounds what we need to be doing in this time, uh, we all recognize that you know things are going to be a little bit different. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you for continuing to listen to us and to support us. Uh, it really means the world to us. Um, but we do apologize that the sound may not be uh, what we want it to be. But bear with us once this is all over. We are working towards making sure that we're going to have even better sound quality through this. Um, and I and I'll ask because we have a lot of people who are finding us as of late, just organically. But I would I would ask that our listeners may take a moment to on Apple Podcast rate and review us, help other people find uh, what we're doing in this time, and help other people engage with some of these conversations that we're having about how to how to best be Christians, how to best process our theology in our everyday world and our everyday life. Um, other ways to support us, too, uh, if, if you feel so inclined, we have a link in our show notes, in our bio, whether it's Spotify or um, Apple Podcast, to our Anchor account, which if you feel so inclined to donate, every little bit helps in helping us make sure that we can keep up the sound quality and the work that we're doing. Uh, thank you guys so much for, for going on this journey with us, and we hope to keep producing great content for you here in the future. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. everyone to Everyday Theology. Um, it's my privilege and honor today to have with us Brian Zond, a pastor, theologian, thinker, writer, author extraordinaire. Um, so thank you so much for being with us, Brian, today. No, it's my privilege. And, and I read this little snippet about you that you are a Bob Dylan aficionado. I am. I can just tell you straight up. I'm almost a Dylanologist. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, I, I like Dylan, but what I like the most about Dylan is that him and I share the same birth date on May 24th. Yeah. And um, you probably weren't I born in 1941, though. That is correct. <laughs> I, I wasn't. But I tweet him every single year telling him happy birthday, hoping that he'll respond in kind. But he doesn't really seem to be that active in yeah, Twitter. Yeah, he's, he's famously aloof. 
<laughs> uh, today with us as well, we have Robbie back on the podcast with me. And so thanks again, Robbie, for being with us as well. Always happy to be with you, Aaron. Um, uh, Brian, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our listeners, let, get the, let them know a little bit about you and get to know you and about how you've gotten to where you are in your kind of theological pastoring journey. Well, in one sense, it's a simple story because I've pastored one church for 38 years. Um, wow. That's amazing. The church that I founded, technically, the church was founded as Word of Life Church in November of 1981. I'll, I'll save people from trying to do arithmetic. I'm 61. Uh, and this church was founded officially in November of 1981. 81 when I was 22, but really it was just an outgrowth of a Jesus movement. Maybe our listeners know what the Jesus movement was in the 1970s. A Jesus movement coffee house, which was mostly a music venue that I was leading by the time I was 17, but I was also doing some teaching and more or less kind of evolved into a church. So I tell people, look, I've been doing the work of a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> Which is, which is not something I recommend, <laughs> not a pattern to follow, but it's what happened. So in one sense, you know, I've done one thing and stayed in one place. Uh, on the other hand, there's been a, a, quite a journey in staying in this one place with this one church. Because, you know, where you start out when you're 22 in the Jesus movement and where I am today is there's uh, it's been a long and winding road. And uh, so I don't know. That's what I do. I pastor Word of Life Church. It's hard to describe what it is. I was talking with Robbie just a couple of days ago on a Zoom thing, and he described his church as sort of post something rather Pentecostal, post evangelical, but now leaning more toward um, somewhat sacramental, liturgical. We're something like that. Uh, maybe we are. Uh, maybe we're kind of like rock and roll Anglican. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to be coy. I just don't know what we are. Um, so, and, and I've been writing a lot of books. I've written, I think, eight books in the past 10 years, working on a ninth one right now. I'm four chapters in. I, I'm, I'm making good progress on the book because I was – I was sort of bemoaning the situation that my travel schedule was so full all in the first half of 2020. But I also have this book I'm working on. And, well, there are silver linings. <laughs> yeah. So this, this pandemic and stay at home and all of that business, at least I'm getting some more writing time in. Anyway, that's enough about me. All right. So one of the things I'd like for us to, to talk about today, Brian, is kind of pastoral responses two times of crisis. And so those who will be listening, you know, in, in our time will know exactly what we're talking about. If someone picks up on this conversation uh, years from now, uh, they might not know. It reminds me a little bit of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul's been talking about the married and the unmarried. And then before he gets to his argument about, well, maybe uh, you should just be celibate like me, he makes this reference, well, in the present crisis, stay as you are. And I've read a lot of commentaries that suggested a lot of different things, some theological, some kind of historical or socio-historical. But at the end of the day, we really don't know what the present crisis was for Paul. Right. Because if and you're in the middle of the crisis, you can just say in times like these, yes. and we all know what we're talking about. So, of course, we're talking about the coronavirus and the pandemic. But... 
But I think there's a lot of truth that kind of moves from time to time or crisis to crisis about how uh, pastors and maybe especially pastors in the in the larger Pentecostal kind of charismatic world that believe so much in kind of God and intervention and mm-hmm. miracles and such. Like, what is the appropriate or some of the appropriate kind of pastoral responses that that we might give in times like these? I think the first thing that pastors need to try to avoid, and it doesn't just pertain to this kind of crisis, but almost any crisis that might be much smaller, you know, a death in a family that was particularly tragic or unanticipated. I think pastors need to resist the temptation to explain why it has happened. Um, The role of the pastor is to help bring comfort and alert people to the presence of God, the love of God, uh, to help people maybe become aware of how God is present with them. But if we begin to explain, if we see it as our primary task to explain, we're almost certainly going to go down the road of Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and worst of all, uh, Elihu. Yeah, Yeah, these uh, miserable comforters who don't intend to be miserable comforters, but in their attempt to explain, they cannot resist blaming. And they end up blaming Job. The, The victim often is blamed. Well, even if we don't go down that road of blaming the victim, which is in times of crisis, we don't need to focus on blame. You know, who's to blame? How did we deserve this? Or who, you know, what what nefarious group of people out there brought this curse upon us? That sort of thing. So I, I say that the first thing is resist the temptation to bring an explanation. And where that really comes from is we still want to have a sense of being in control. And we try to explain so that we can say, oh, okay, I see. These people did that, and so this has happened. Well, I'll just have to be careful not to do that so this doesn't happen to me. Um, So, no, we're we're not here to explain. That usually goes bad. We end up doing the work of the Satan, who is the accuser. And we should say that when, when... the role of the pastor in the crisis is not to be the devil. <laughs> yeah, so, that, that makes sense. Yeah, so <laughs> try not to lean into explanation, but rather um, call people to be aware of the presence of God, the love of God. I'm thinking about the Hebrew prophets, which could be a testy bunch. You know, the Hebrew prophets uh, were always kind of against the grain when things were prosperous they were warning that you know Israel had forsaken God and judgment was coming but when judgment actually did come uh, you'll see how the prophets always turn a corner and it's comfort comfort ye my people and so in a time of crisis the role of the pastor is to bring comfort to have a kind of a steady presence and help people turn their attention toward the presence of God. Not necessarily the, um, well, I, know, I know Robbie wants to talk about this, not necessarily the immediate intervention of God to pluck us out of this situation, but at least the loving presence of God. Yeah, so that's, that, that's the first thing I want to say, is uh, resist the temptation to explain, but rather bring comfort by helping people find the presence of God. 
people do want to believe that God is speaking in these situations. So I think it's it's an, important for a pastor to have what Walter Brueggemann calls a word from elsewhere. So, you know, in this particular crisis where it's it's global in nature and it it's not only dominates the news, it, it almost exclusively is the news. Uh, people are going to have words coming to them from all of the news outlets and 24-7 cable channels. Uh, they need a word from elsewhere. You know, what is the word of the Lord in this? And, you know, again, I'd be careful about trying to cook up something, you know, special. Rather, how, how can we go to the scriptures and find something that does speak to us now? And that's not hard to do because so much of scripture was written in times like these. Uh, I think that's part of what's remarkable about this moment is we have tended to think that these are things that are confined to other places and other times, other histories, Bible times, the medieval ages. But here we're in the thick of it. Um, well, we are our text, our, the scriptures that we have is absolutely overflowing with words that were composed in times like these. It, it reminds me a bit of uh, something I, I read from N.T. Wright recently where, you know, N.T. Wright is saying something similar where, you know, we don't, the, the Christian theology, Christian sense doesn't always have to have an answer. Right. And when we try to manufacture that answer, it's usually when we kind of go awry pretty far. And what I liked about what N.T. Wright was saying was that actually there is a biblical response to a time such as this, and maybe it can be that word from elsewhere, and that thing is called lament. Yes. Uh, yes. Like, it's it's actually a, a word of lament. It's a word of sorrow. It's crying out to God, not necessarily looking for the quick fix, but just expression of pain and suffering to God. And and I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I, I actually found that very helpful. That. <laughs> per- perfect. Uh, you know, people that don't pray the Psalms daily, people that are maybe, you know, they know there's a book in the Bible called the Psalms, that they and they maybe know the twenty third Psalm or something like that. They can get the impression that the Psalms are mostly lyrics for praise choruses. Now there are some mm. like that, but you know there's all kinds of genres of Psalms. There's the imprecatory Psalms, you know, calling down curses on enemies. There's the historical Psalms, the royal Psalms, and then as you mentioned, there are the laments. Uh, we need to lament. Because it's in lament that we carve out space within our own soul. I mean, we acknowledge the pain we feel, and we're carving out space for it to be filled with some kind of grace. Uh, mm. Jesus will say, blessed are those who mourn, for they should be comforted. Rather than this flat, prosaic denial, uh, we lament to give expression, that is to, to mourn, that, that that opens us up to receive in due time comfort uh, yeah. that will come from God and from others. Now, here's something I've noticed. In an economic military superpower, we can say empire, but I, I'm not trying to be provocative here. I'm just trying to help people. Um, yeah. What do economic superpowers, economic military superpowers, well, they, they're number one. You know, and, they, and we just always kind of have to feel we're on top, we're exempt, we're exceptional. This happens there, not here. And you see it in the book of Revelation, where the where the woman who rides the back of the beast, this is Roma, 
this is this is a personification of of uh, the Roman Empire, and she says, "I am no widow; I shall never see sorrow." Uh, mm. And the prophetic response is, "Oh no, you're sorry. It's coming to you, baby. It's going to come, and it's going to come hard." Uh, so we don't have a lot of practice in lamenting as a c- American culture. We have practice in chanting, "We're number one, USA," that sort of thing. Uh, so it's it's foreign to us, but I think we need to learn. And and of course, the church is not supposed to be, you know, formed by the practices of empire anyway. And lament is a intensely uh, scriptural practice, both Old and New Testament. So I I, yeah. I heartily concur. It's just it's just it's hard for us to learn how to do that. We we have to really rethink what the what the purpose for singing together in church is. Yes, praise is part of it, but to produce some songs that do contain at least themes of lament, I think this is really important. And uh, I mean, I think it's starting to happen. We're starting to see a little bit of that. But I completely agree that one of the first things we do in a in a you know in the presence of a real tragedy is we lament, we mourn before God. We bring these before God. Now, yeah. when I was growing up, yeah. um, when I was growing up in a Pentecostal church in the Appalachian Mountains, and you know, Appalachian Pentecostalism is its own breed of Christianity that's not really replicated much elsewhere. Yeah, we did. Uh, we lamented quite a bit, actually. Like we didn't use the term lament. That's kind of a fancy word. Right. But we we prayed through. <clears throat> we 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 tarried. We we held on to the horns of the altar. I mean, we told a lot of testimonies, but the testimonies weren't just happy talk. The right. testimonies were about people's struggles. And so, I, I mean, I think Pentecostalism, as I know it, has kind of, I, I don't know, wandered away from that practice. It kind of bought into a bit of the uh, American rah-rah, well, you know, I mean, happy talk and things. Say that know, again? It became more prosperous. It did. That's mm, true. Yeah. Then you have to keep mm-hmm. up appearances. Yeah, that's true. That, that, that Pentecostal instinct to acknowledge that which you feel in the context of church is really good. It's healthy. Uh, it's You will find that where the church is present, um, acknowledging the Holy Spirit and not trying to I don't know I don't know how to say it other than not trying to be Presbyterian. <laughs> not, right. not trying to be successful and and look good and um yeah. So I, on the one on the one hand, I, I guess I wanna maybe encourage some of our listeners, particularly those who have kind of Pentecostal or charismatic roots, that they might want to to reach back into those and and kind of recapture that practice of of lament and tarrying and you know praying through was a was a term that I heard a lot kind of growing up. But on the other hand, man, let me tell you, we prayed a lot of of intercessory prayers with expectation that that God was going to do something. And I think some of that probably needs to be interrogated some. It was as though in my prayers I was I came up with some good idea and mm-hmm. now I'm going to suggest it to God as though God needs, you know, 
me to, to say, hey, God, why don't you think about healing this person? You know, why don't you think about delivering that person? As, as though somehow God's just up there, you know, wringing his hands, wondering what should I do? Well, and, a, yeah. in, in the word of faith movement, which I came from, I mean, it's not where I started, but I, I did 20 years there probably. <laughs> right. Again, as I said, you know, never moving from place to place and, as pastor of Word of Life Church, but moving with various movements that would yeah that we would join up the word of faith movement is even worse about that it's not so the word of faith movement is not imploring saying god you should do you should do this you should do this it's your own faith i mean god is sort of just on the sidelines uh, mm-hmm. observing you as you speak this into existence as you curse this thing as you bind and as you loose and so in the word of faith movement uh the person becomes very much in control. Of course, that's an impossible burden to bear. And, you know, reality has a way of, you know, asserting itself. <laughs> um, yeah. You have to become clever about how you explain what's happening or not happening. Um, well, yeah, so I, I understand that. And again, I, I'm, I'm being serious. I think that even the word of faith expression of that effort to control is even more egregious than what you would see in some forms of Pentecostal where you're giving God good ideas. Word of faith is actually trying to speak these things into existence, thus word of faith. Um, I have, you know, and I mean, I lived that way for a, a good long while as a pastor. And eventually I just realized I could not, I could not carry that burden. I could not. So it was up to me for everybody with cancer in my church to get healed. And if they didn't, mm. it was a personal failure. It was my yeah. personal failure. I think I actually did a pretty good job. I mean, I honestly do. I don't think I blamed other people when prayers that we would be you know, offering, especially I'm thinking about healing for people. I didn't blame other people, but I did blame myself. Hmm. You know, how come you don't have enough faith, Brian? Well, you know, what's wrong with you? And I eventually just got to the end. I thought, I can't, I can't bear this anymore. And so I just decided I would pray for healing and leave it in God's hands. And I think maybe this touches a little bit on um, what Robbie and I were talking about earlier this week. Um, there's a lot of people that maybe arrive at that point where they've grown up in a Pentecostal, charismatic uh, church where uh, in intercession they're praying for a very definite outcome. And then they see how mercurial it turns out to be. And so they abandon that. Um, but you can you can make the mistake of arriving at the place where you pray such safe prayers that you never risk disappointment. Because if you look at your prayers, you're actually just praying something so vague, so ambiguous that you would actually never know whether God (laughs) answered your prayer or not. And so I think that would be (laughs) the other extreme that you want to avoid going to. Uh, I think, especially as we intercede for others, this is part of how we love well. God, I ask that you would heal Kim, I ask God that you would, you know, let's pray big. Let's God, I ask that you would rescue us from coronavirus. Oh, God, make speed to save us. Oh, Lord, make haste to help us. Mm. Um, you know, that's from the Gloria. And I pray that many, many times every day. It's, it's, um, I'm not giving advice. 
I'm not necessarily saying, okay, this exact thing needs to happen in this way on this date, but I am imploring God um, to intervene. And I think this is part of the priestly role of the church, that this is part of, of being a kingdom of priests is that we do intercede and we do invoke the intervention of God in the way of mercy and grace and help and healing. So I think we shouldn't abandon that. Sometimes maybe we do it even out of embarrassment. Uh, we're, we're so under pressure from, uh, from enlightenment-informed rationalism that we don't want to be seen as primitives who, ask, who actually think that God answers prayer. Well, I think we have to maybe just be willing to bear that shame and say, no, I I don't, I'm not in control. And I don't have any more answers than anybody else does, but I believe in a God who loves and cares, and I am imploring God yeah. to intervene and help us. And do that unashamedly. Yeah. Because I, I think a lot of people, especially right now, are struggling with that. Um, uh, just with the idea of, I mean, do I pray over this, you know, about this coronavirus thing? Do I pray that God take care of it? Do I pray that God just, you know, fix every, fix the entire situation or am I hopeless in my prayer? Does God even hear what I'm saying? Does it really even matter? Will my prayer actually affect any change? Well, we see this, yeah, we see this tension with Jesus in Gethsemane, don't we? Um, I, I think this may originally air during Holy Week. And Jesus, you know, on Monday, Thursday, leaves the upper room, goes to Gethsemane. He's in tremendous agony. And yeah. he asks that this cup, this cup of suffering and sorrow, be taken away from him. All right, you know, we're theologians here. This is, this is a place where we really do see um, two wills in Christ. A human will that naturally recoils at torture and death. And he yeah. pleads that this cup be taken away. And yet there's another will, yet not my will, but thy will be done. And uh, there's nothing wrong with us imitating Christ. We're in a crisis. <laughs> exactly. we're, in, we're in our own Gethsemane. And I think, I don't think it's healthy just to deny what we desire. And we say, God, take this away. Help us through this. Rescue us now. Come. There must be some other way. There, there must be some other way. Find another way. God, take this cup away. Nevertheless, not my will. Right. But thy will right. be done. And, and by the way, that doesn't mean necessarily that what happens as far as sorrow and suffering is God's will. It just may mean that it, God is saying, no, you're, you're going to walk through it. I know it's terrible. I know it belongs to death. I know it's not part of the ultimate redemptive purposes that I have for the universe, but I want you to walk through it anyway. And yeah. so stress comes about, as I understand it, I'm, you know, stress is a medical term. Uh, the flight or fight mechanism kicking in which is useful if you're out on the savannah being chased by, you know, a lion. But in our modern life, it's not, we don't really need all of that adrenaline most of the time, but we still have these anxieties that, that, that kicks in flight or fight. In Gethsemane, Jesus could have literally fled. He could have just, you know, crept off into the Judean desert and set up camp and, 
had sort of a escapist. He could have had a bunch of, you know, contemplative spirituality seminars out in the desert and just you know, never really <laughs> engaged with society and done it that way. Or he could have done what so many wanted him to do, and that was actually take up the sword and fight and become a Messiah in the model of David and Judah Maccabeus and all of that. Um, Jesus finds a third way, and it's a way of trust. He's not going to fight. He's not going to flee. He's going to stay, and he's going to trust. That's the nevertheless not my will be done. And that that aspect of trust reaches its pinnacle when Jesus prays, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Which in one, mm. I think we, in one way we can understand that is, Father, I've done all I can do. I, I have... I've come to the end of it. I have been faithful. I've done what I can do. It's in your hands now. So I think we can live in that tension of, God, I really prefer that you take this cup away. Uh, in fact, I'm asking you, please take this cup away. Yeah. But it's in your hands. So so there, there is the, a specific request, and yet there is ultimately a surrender of trust. And, and right. trust is not is not ambivalence. Trust is not I don't care. Trust is trust is and our trust is not in a certain outcome. Our trust is in a certain person, the living God. Yeah. And so we say, no matter what, God, I still trust you. I'm convinced that you, that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Ultimately, I fear no evil because you're with me, not because the circumstance is going to be what I want it to be, but you're with me. Yeah. I think that it sounds very, you know, in some degree, Paul Tillich's understanding of what Jesus is going through in this, in this moment. Um, and Paul Tillich in that nevertheless says that Jesus is displaying the courage to be right. Mm -hmm. The, the proclamation of what what he's about to go through the proclamation of, of the, the struggle of maybe even the anxiety of what he's about to go to. But in the, nevertheless, we see the courage to be, uh, the courage to remain faithful in light of everything else saying to not remain faithful. And I think what you to recap maybe a little bit and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but just, it sounds to me like when we pray, it is both an earnest expectation, but also in the courage of if the prayer isn't answered, we're still moving forward. Right. At least if the prayer isn't answered in the way that we would hope for it to be answered, maybe. Well, I mean, don't we have to say that in one sense, if Jesus' prayer was remove this cup, the prayer wasn't answered. <laughs> so, right, so Jesus right. also had the experience of having a desire in prayer, expressing that desire in prayer, and it didn't come to pass. Yeah. And yeah. I find great comfort in that, by the way. I do too. I think that's the thing that a lot of people, and, and maybe talking about that kind of, you know, that word of faith thing again, is that people don't find comfort in that. Rather, they think that the comfort has to come through uh, exactly how they expect it to be. It's the same that I think I feel comfort in, and this is a, kind of a different topic, but similar for me and my mindset is I find comfort in seeing the times that the apostles make mistakes in the New Testament, right. not because I can blame, I can be like, oh, I'm fine. They did it. But more for the fact that I can look to it and say, hey, if they, if they did it, if they made mistakes and God still loves them, like they're moving forward and I can move forward too. Yeah, so I don't know. Uh, this might be uh, a little too um, 
uh, culturally, um, I don't, I don't know what I'm saying here, but, um, that, that idea that somehow you, you look at someone else who's kind of struggling and it kind of, it can make us feel better. Not that's what you were doing, Aaron, but right. I do believe that's part of, of what's made this Tiger King so sensational during the coronavirus, this Netflix documentary. People yeah. like watching somebody. Keeps telling me I have to watch it, but I, I, I haven't. Well, it's a, it's a train wreck from beginning to end. <laughs> and, yeah, it is. And by watching it, I think people feel like, well, I'm out of control. I'm struggling. I'm My anxiety is kind of off the chart. I don't know what to do. And then they watch this episode where they see someone who's even in a worse situation. And somehow they it kind of appeases them a bit. I don't... I don't think it's particularly healthy, but but perhaps right. it's therapeutic in its own way. Um, Maybe I'll put a better spin on it. Again, I can't comment on Tiger King. I haven't seen it. But but if I feel sad, I'm the personality. I don't want to listen to happy music. I want to listen to sad music. But yeah. I think what somehow, somehow there is taking your sadness, leaning into it, and making art out of it is a good thing. And of course, you may not be the artist. You may say, okay, well, here's some, here's an artist who has taken sadness, pain, sorrow, and made something beautiful out of it. That I think is a good thing. And so, um, so maybe when you're feeling like, um, you're, you're feeling a lot of pressure and your soul feels crushed. Maybe you're, you're not reading about Jesus walking on water. Maybe you, maybe you go and you sit in that passage where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating blood and, and, and experiencing real agony, asking that a cup be taken away, and it's not. And somehow you think, okay, Jesus has been through that too. And Jesus is the high priest that is sympathetic and I mean, the whole culmination of that passage in Hebrews that I'm drawing upon now is um, let us draw. Let me, let me get it right. It's Hebrews 4, 16. Let us come with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Those, by the way, are the kind of passages that I think pastors need to to offer and preach from and bring to their congregations, not in a prescriptive way, uh, reaching back just for a moment to talking about word of faith days. I mean, we were, we would say in those days, uh, you, you cannot add a rejoinder to your prayer. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. If that was an expression of unbelief. Well, you know, if that's an expression of unbelief, then, you know, Jesus was full of unbelief. <laughs> uh, no, uh, I think what people really want is an assurance from someone they trust, hopefully that's their pastor, to tell them you are not abandoned, you are not forsaken, God is with you, take your pain, take your fear, let's come on, let's go to the throne of grace with confidence, we don't have to go with fear and trembling, let's go with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Exactly what form that help takes on, we don't know, but we are confident that at the throne of grace we will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I find myself doing um, during these difficult times is leaning into kind of contemplative prayer. Like when I don't know what to pray, uh, prayers of silence <clears throat> seem to be 
even more appropriate. I mean, I don't have the right words to pray anyway. So a practice where I just sit and acknowledge the presence of God offers a certain calming effect that, I mean, I guess it's always that way. And in my sense of of control is more just of a veneer that's been, you know, resting ever so gently on on the surface. But, you know, tough times like these, that veneer easily gets gets stripped away and and we kind of realize, you know, what we're really made of. And I think um, at least personally, I, I've I found those practices not not an escape like out to the desert, but just, you know, that focusing on God and centering and being aware of God's presence. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a sense of, you know, care for my family, for my church, for my, my school, my, my colleagues, my students, but, um, it helps when you don't know what to, to pray to practice a prayer of silence. I think. Yeah. I call it sitting with Jesus and I practice it every day. There's a place in my morning time of prayer where, you know, I've prayed formative prayers from a well-crafted liturgy. I've prayed my own prayers. I've offered my petitions. I've made intercession. Um, and then I, I simply sit with Jesus. I, I may take, I, I have an orthodox prayer rope because I'm very eclectic. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, I have an orthodox prayer rope that has a uh, hundred knots these little woolen knots and it's divided up with these beads. And I'll just take a lap around that kind of slowly takes about five minutes. Just pray the Jesus prayer with each knot. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me. Hit one of those beads. I pray the Lord's prayer. Our father who art in heaven. Yeah, it takes about five minutes. I just barely whispering it. And then after, you know, one lap around that, I'll just sit with Jesus. I'm acknowledging the presence of Jesus. But but I've used all the words. I don't I don't need to. I, I don't have any words, and I'm sitting with Jesus. And then people say, "Well, what happens?" I say, "Well, that's that's the thing that's happening. I'm sitting with Jesus. And what are you doing? I'm listening to Jesus. What is He saying?" I said, "Most of the time, He's not saying anything. What's He doing? He's listening to me. Listen to Him. <laughs> so we're both each <laughs> other. Listen to each other. Us, yet." See, Jesus is present, and I'm acknowledging that. And Jesus is peace. Jesus is grace. Jesus is wisdom. Jesus is salvation. All of the wisdom and blessings of God are found in Christ. And I just sit with the one who is the fullness of that. Now, occasionally a word will come. Occasionally, but it's very rare. And I don't anticipate that. I don't expect that. I expect simply to sit in the presence of the one who is my good shepherd, the one who is my savior, the one who has promised never to leave me nor forsake me. I sit in his presence for an indeterminate amount of time. For me, it's, it's typically not long. Um, but in some ways, I think that's maybe the most important time in my morning prayer is sitting with Jesus. But I can't just jump to that. I need, I need to go down the track of prayer of the of the liturgical form prayers that are forming me and then and then offer my more spontaneous petitions and intercessions and then arrive at that place that I think of in some ways as the holy of holies where I just go in where I'm just sitting with Jesus and nothing is happening but me sitting with Jesus
It reminds me, I think, of that, you know, that verse that's often used to be still and know that I am mm-hmm. God type of verse. But this this moment of maybe for those who are in the church who are trying to process this, um, this kind of moment. And, and it can be hard, I think, especially if you're quarantined, you're self-isolating, you've got a big family to try and find like a quiet place to just yeah. be still. Um, but there's something uh, maybe even subversive about like in a moment where, you know, every news outlet, every notification on your phone, every text you get is somehow about kind of the coronavirus, right? Somehow about the crisis that our world is is dealing with to something subversive to say, I'm going to push all of that away purposefully and just sit and be still, I think allows people to reset in a way with God, just, just being in the presence of God to kind of say, actually, while the world is saying all this is important and it is, it's got its importance and its time and its space, but the real important moment is me being with God and how that affects everything else. Yeah. Let me say something about that. Um, we live now, we're decades into the phenomenon of 24 seven cable news, but I mean, listen, it's 24 seven cable news. They've got to talk about something 24-7. It is a business that that more or less falls in the category of entertainment. And they've got to keep your attention and talk about this thing 24-7. And that's not healthy. My recommendation is perhaps to pay attention to some more conventional news outlets. I mean, you need to know the news during this time, but you can either go to a print based, you know, some newspaper source that you you have come to think is pretty good. And uh, you can, you know, you'll access them online and read what they have to say, or, you know, some of the more like, you know, PBS, ABC, CBS, NBC, whatever, where they, okay, here's a half an hour. We're going to, we're going to give you the nightly news in a half an hour form. Rather than saying, okay, I let others curate the news, find what's important, find what you need to know, and let them tell it to you in a half an hour. Don't sit there hour after hour after hour uh, consuming that which, you know, it may be news, but it's also filler, and it's also got to be entertaining enough, and one form of entertainment is horror, <laughs> and and just watch the horror show 24-7. Stay informed, but don't fall into that black hole where that is just, you know, filling you with dread and anxiety. Yeah, and... Uh, I think, you know, this idea of sitting with Jesus, and I've heard you talk about this before um, on another podcast, like I said, is it's a beautiful recognition for those who are dealing with that anxiety or dealing with that struggle um, and, and dealing with that kind of, you know, what's going to come next reality to, to be cautiously... Uh, both optimistic, but also just reoriented. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of us, me included, right. It's really easy for me to not take that time. Um, because there's so much going on, even though I'm stuck in my house now at this point, um, it's easy for me to find something else to do, but it's much harder to recognize when I need to stop and when I need to 
to just be still. And I love that you've kind of built that into your practice of a daily routine because it's it's daily reminding us of that kind of subversive reality that everything that the world might be saying is important. Hey, you know what? I can take us I can break away from everything else that that seems to be important and can have importance but also recognize where I really need to center myself in light of God. Yeah, and and I might be overly optimistic or ambitious here in this recommendation, but why not? Um, since so many people are confined in their homes. I think, I think one of the things I just want to listen to the side, I want to throw in, not everybody's confined to their home. I don't mean that people are, uh, you know, recklessly violating a stay at home order. I know. I mean, there's people that have to go to work, right? Know? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's doctors and nurses and people at Walmart and, and people at restaurants that are, you know, preparing meals and, presumably somebody's at the power company keeping the lights on. Uh, So not everyone is just sitting at home. And I want to acknowledge that, that some people are out there having to, in in one sense, navigate these waters like us, but without, if it is a luxury, the luxury of just sitting at home. Uh, Okay. So I'd said that now for those (laughs) who are sitting at home a lot more, I mean, we're, we're at home. I mean, I, I, there's never been a time in my life when I've been at home this much. And, uh, so maybe what you could do is begin the practice of praying the hours. You, you, you can figure out how to do it yourself, but, but just say, okay, maybe, you know, just keep it simple. I'm going to have a time of prayer in the morning, at noon, in the evening, and then at bedtime. Just think of it that way. Just think, you know, for, and it, it doesn't have to be ambitious. I'm going to have an hour, but no, you know, have, have a time of morning prayer. And then if it's nothing else, pray, pray the Lord's Prayer. Pray the psalm for the day. I just base it on the day of the year. That's that's what I do. And so, or or whatever, you know, you'll, you'll come up. You'll find some prayers. It doesn't have to be long. It can be you know five six minutes uh, at noon, evening, nighttime. Uh, but maybe begin to incorporate that kind of rhythm. This is, of course, this is an ancient practice of the church that was inherited from. Uh, the Jewish forebears of several times a day acknowledging the presence of God in prayer. This is what church bells were about. The church bells weren't originally just to, hey, we're going to have church, come get inside the building. Church bells were to remind people of the various hours of the day that they would take a break and pray. And uh, again, it doesn't have to be long, but I think, you know, there's something about r- rhythm is health. Right. I mean, if your heart's out of rhythm, you know, if your digestive system's out of rhythm, if your sleep patterns are out of rhythm, you're unhealthy. So rhythm is health. And we need the holy rhythm of regular prayer uh, throughout the day. And this might be an opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to experiment with praying the hours. I, I love it. And I think, you know, these responses that we've talked about so far today to um, to times of crisis, especially our very contextualized one that we're, you know, that we're all dealing with currently are beautiful practices that, that if we start them, oftentimes when we start them in times of crisis, we can easily forget them in times of non-crisis. 
Yeah, but that's, what that's you're saying told over and over in the history of Israel. <laughs> right. And what we're saying is like, and what you're saying from what I hear is that if we start these practices, like the times of crisis can actually be the best times to start these practices to help us remember to keep doing the practices after the times of crisis right. or when things kind of go back <clears throat> to the old normal. And, uh, if we do that and we do that well, it's, it is a truly healthy means of living versus a crisis means of living mm -hmm. where we just run back to God when things are terrible. And when we're afraid of something, we'll just go back to God real quick. And then when everything's okay, uh, maybe I'll pray today. I don't know. It depends on if I have time and it does, it resembles a lot, a lot like ancient Israel, right? Yes. Um, yeah, that's, that's one of the lessons we're to take from that story of Israel that in times of War, famine, pestilence, plague, they called upon the Lord. And then in times of prosperity, they drifted away. I mean, it's almost a cliche, but we know that story is there and we want to avoid that. But maybe maybe that's not what we emphasize right now, because now is the time when I think people are more <laughs> right. In, right. inclined to say, OK, um, yeah, I, I, I want help from God. I want to seek God. I want God to draw near to me. I think. Probably right now is an easier time to help people learn how to find some rhythms of prayer and scripture, contemplation, those sorts of things. We're all, we're all learning how to practice the sacrament of communion on our own, which I in general don't like, you know, uh, as often as I've said, no, 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 this isn't something you do, you know, at home by yourself. <laughs> well, right now, this is something you do at home by yourself with, right. with, with uh, you know, something going online. Or as I describe it, we're in a BYOB situation with the Eucharist right now. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Brian, this has been so good. I, I think it's going to be really good for a lot of our listeners who are, uh, you know, still trying to figure out what to do in this time and still trying to figure out how to respond and the pastors who listen, trying to figure out the best ways to kind of help their congregation. I think this is really beautiful and helpful. Um, so thank you so much for, for doing this with us. It's been wonderful. How can people connect with you or maybe stay uh, up with what you're doing or if there's even any of your books that they can read to help through this time? I'm pretty uh, easy throw out some recommendations because my name is rare. Brian Zond, Z-A-H-N-D. Yeah, you put that into Amazon. There's my books. You put it into Google. You'll find my website, you know, Word of Life Church. I'm pretty easy to find. So I'm, I'm out there and some social media. There is the brianzon.com and you can find the books on Amazon because you can't go to the store for them right now. <laughs> right. And right. You get the Kindle versions. Most of them, I think are all my books on Kindle. Maybe I can't remember. I think so. Surely they are. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I see a lot of Kindle books going on sale, almost like them encouraging like, Hey, just buy the uh, digital one so we can do less shipping and less uh, touching yeah, well, of things. Yeah, well, first of all, if Amazon had their way, uh, there would be no more paper books on the planet. Uh, cause they make so, I mean, as an author on in, that knows a little inside stuff, they make, I mean, come on it's a digital <laughs> file. They can reproduce countless of those yeah though they make money on kindle yeah Others don't make much money but amazon makes a lot and of I'm, money and i'm the kind of person i need a physical book i can't uh, read I, I have there. a very hard that's time because you're not a gnostic 
<laughs> that was a little theology joke for the real inclined at the very end, right? Yeah. Um, well, again, thank you so much for being with us. It's been a huge honor and pleasure to have both you and Robbie with me today. Uh, super beneficial, and I can't wait to see how people implement some of those practices. Thank you, Aaron. Yeah, it's nice to be with you, Aaron, and always nice to be with you, Brian. Thank you, Robbie.